Well, I don't know about y'all, but I heard and learned a new word today. Uh, I, I don't know if y'all know, but thraldom was new to me. I, I, I've, I've never heard that word. Thraldom, noun, a state of subjugation to an owner or master. Bondage, enslavement, helotry. I don't know what that one means. Uh, serfdom, servileness, severity, servitude, slavery. Uh, so thraldom is a new word I learned today from our our catechism. Uh, last week uh, we're going th- we're going through uh, the, a fundamentalist series, just a return to some of the important basic foundational issues uh, that we have in Christianity. Uh, one of the things I don't know if y'all keep up with this, but there's uh, been a change in, in uh, the way in which we do evangelism, and, and the reason why the change came about is really interesting. Uh, you, you know, it used to be, uh, you know, thirty, forty, fifty years ago, there were things that people could do in evangelism, stuff like the Romans Road. You know, there's a, a, a gap between you and God. Uh, sin is separating you. And one of the things they found is that these methods of describing salvation and sin and, and the, the problem man has with God are no longer effective. And uh, people who study these issues have gone back and tried to look, well, you know, why did the Romans Road work so well previously, but it isn't working as well now. And it's because there has been a transition uh, from a culture that was biblically literate. So even if you weren't a Christian... You would have heard about Adam and Moses and Abraham. You would have uh, heard stories of Jesus and, and Paul. Even if you had no church background in school systems and through the culture at large, you would learn about these things. So even though you weren't a Christian, you had the background to understand the concepts. Now what they're finding in, in, when they do evangelism and they talk about a sin separating you from God, people aren't really sure what you mean by sin and aren't really sure who you're talking about when you refer to God. So the people who have had to kind of uh, rework, okay, how do we reach now a people who don't even have uh, the biblical basis, basics with the gospel message, uh, have determined that in order to understand the gospel message, you have to understand the story of the Bible. And what we've been doing is we've been going back and looking at the story of the Bible in order that we can understand what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do, and so that we can have vocabulary, so that we can have words, so that we can have ways to describe it to people who don't have any biblical background, who don't know the story. And we've uh, gone through creation. We're now getting into the fall, uh, not the autumn, but uh, the fall of mankind. Uh, last week, Eli uh, spoke to us, and he spoke about the word and the warning of God. And that message is so tied into what we're talking about today, which is the temptation and the fall, uh, that I think it's appropriate to do a little bit of a review of last week. 
Last week, uh, we, talks, we talked about how in the garden, the word of God comes to mankind. And Eli did a really good job describing how the word of God is given not as a trick or a trap to mankind, but given out of the love and the goodness of God. You know, what, what I always think of uh, when I think about, you know, giving somebody a command or, or, or saying something in order to trick them or trap them. Uh, this happened to me when I was at Moody Bible Institute in college. You know, my parents, uh, after I graduated from high, high school, they moved overseas uh, and uh, sent me off to Moody Bible Institute. So I say, you know, after I graduated high school, my parents shipped me off to an institute and left the country. Um, <laughs> But while I was there, uh, there was one time I remember we were uh, dismissed out of classes. I, I was coming down out, and I came out of a stairwell, and, and I saw a sign on a wall. And, and it said, do not touch wet paint. And, and very curiously, I just stuck my thumb on it, and just a tiny, tiny bit of paint came off, uh, and then I heard somebody say, hey, uh, and I looked, and then immediately, uh, about uh, 10 yards away, was the person who had painted the wall, <laughs> leaning up, just staring at all the students coming out to make sure anybody, so I said, uh-oh, and then just kind of headed out and walked quickly away uh, as I had been caught, but so, so Eli was saying, you know, it's not like that, it's not like he, he was tempting mankind to try and uh, trick him or, or trap him. Uh, in fact, one of the things I, I want to really argue uh, is that the command God gives man is, is both for God's glory and mankind's benefit. Uh, in, in Genesis two fifteen through 17, it said, Then the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat fruit from every tree in the orchard, every tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, in order to kind of accept my my premise that this is to honor God and to benefit mankind, there's a couple things, a couple premises that you have to accept. Uh, the first one I think most of people will agree with, but they don't think about it in, in, in terms of the garden. Uh, in Hebrews, it tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and must believe that He rewards those who seek Him. Now, in, in this definition... He, Hebrews tells us uh, that faith consists of a belief that God exists and that His goodness extends towards those who pursue a right relationship with Him. That, that, that is something basic and fundamental. Faith believes that God is good. Faith believes that God wants what's best for us. Faith demonstrates trust in the character of God by obedience to the Word of God. After all, if God is good and if God rewards those who seek Him, then obedience is our best course of action. So we have this command that is given to God by God, and I believe it's in order for man to demonstrate faith in God. 
Uh, that's the first premise. That's the one I think mo- most people will agree with. Uh, but the other, th- the other premise, uh, I hear a lot of teaching, and uh, this idea pops up. I don't know where it came from, and I don't know how to get rid of it, Uh, but it's this idea that life in the garden was perfect. I don't know where that idea came from, uh, but I want to argue that I don't think that idea is biblical. The state in the garden is one of innocence. It's a sinless world, but it is an innocent world. Uh, that is, um, and, and, and by the way, people often say it's perfect, and then they usually describe something like, oh, we just got to get back to the way it is in the garden. We're, we're trying to regain what was lost. But if you, if you read the biblical narrative, what's coming is much greater than what we lost in the garden. What's coming is much more glorious than what was in the garden. In the new heavens and in the new earth, uh, there's going to be another garden. that is only mentions the tree of life in there, not the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's good. doesn't mention a serpent. It says that there is constantly uh, light. There is no darkness. Why? Because we're illuminated by the glory of God. And that we will reign with Christ forever there. Saints, what's coming is far better than what was lost in the garden. Now, the garden was good, the garden was very good, but I'd want to argue that what existed in the garden could be improved. In fact, I, I think that is part of mankind's purpose in the garden. And I believe there, there, there are things uh, that God says that demonstrate that life in the garden could be improved. Now, that's why I get mad when people say it's perfect. It's innocent. It's very good. It's sinless at this point. It's unspoiled. But it's not perfect. There are ways in which it, it, it can be improved. And um, uh, he, let me just... Uh, you know, give kind of some of my arguments for for why that exists. Um, first of all, uh, in Genesis two eighteen, the Lord said, "It is not good. It is not good." So, in a perfect world, before the fall, sorry, I see even I fall into it. In a very good, not a perfect world, <laughs> in an unfallen world, in an innocent state. There's something that God says isn't good. What's not good? That man is alone. So what does God do? God improves upon that situation. Uh, There is a a, a command uh, that's also given to man. uh, And his his job is to uh, keep the garden, to work the garden and to keep it. Well, what does gardening involve? Well, it involves taking good things and improving them. We also saw that in the creation account, didn't we? God would create, and then he would say it was good. Now, saying it's good doesn't mean it's it's perfect, because he kept on creating. He kept on improving. He kept on making things better. In this... And the reason why I'm making this argument is because, you know, you even heard me. I've fallen to this idea that it's perfect and can't be improved upon, I think, is dangerous. Uh, It's dangerous, and I think if you have that idea, then I think you've almost got to come to the conclusion that the tree was placed in the garden as a trap. 
Instead, I think it is uh, a, something that is placed in the garden in order for man to be able to demonstrate faith in God. Now, the tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and I would make the argument that there are two ways you can know what's good and what's evil. One is by doing good, and the other is by doing evil. Uh, by the way, C.S. Lewis even makes the argument uh, that the person who uh, is truly perfect, namely Jesus Christ, knows evil better than any of us do. His, his argument goes along the lines of, uh, you know, there's a way in which an, a wicked person knows evil, but there's a way in which the person who resists evil knows more about wickedness. Uh, the way you, you know how strong, how powerful, how intense an enemy is, isn't by surrendering to him, but by defeating them and overcoming them. There's a way in which Christ knows more about goodness and evil than we do because he has been truly and completely and perfectly good and has truly and completely resisted evil. I believe that the second Adam accomplishes what was intended for the first Adam. The first Adam was given an opportunity to, by faith, demonstrate his obedience and trust in a good God. And therefore, continue enjoying life and intimacy with God. Or, on the other hand, disobey and can come to know evil by becoming something that is evil. It's also interesting, in in this uh, command of God, we we have something uh, unique. Uh, Let's turn to to Psalm 33.9. We're we're jumping around a little bit today, but um, when you're you're doing a series called, uh, what's it called? God, whose subtitle is God's plan for everything, you've got to you've got to jump around a little bit. Come with me to Psalm thirty-three. Uh, we're going to look at, at thirty-three nine. Uh, let's look at eight and nine. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. This is reiterating the creation account of Genesis, that everything in the universe was established because it obeyed the word of God. We see in Genesis a God who speaks the world into existence. Uh, what we have in, in Genesis two fifteen through seventeen is a point in history, the first point in history where the word of God comes to a part of creation that has the opportunity to obey or disobey. Do you know that? All the rest of creation up to this point has instantly and instantaneously obeyed the word of God. Now we have the word of God coming to a part of creation made in the image of God that has the opportunity to either respond by faith in obedience or disbelief and disobedience to the word of God. Now, how would this benefit Adam? 
to obey. I, I, I said earlier, obedience to this command would honor God. That's hopefully pretty obvious. But also provide a benefit for Adam. How would it benefit Adam? Uh, originally, man didn't have a complete knowledge of good and evil. As we said, he was in a state of innocence. God hoped to teach man through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If man responded in faith by not eating the fruit, he would grow in the knowledge of the good. But if man disobeyed, he would instead come to know evil and its consequence. We also see in this command that there uh, there are essentially three parts. Did you notice that? Uh, First, there's a provision. You may eat freely from every fruit of the tree in the garden. That's a, that's a provision. And by the way, it's a gracious provision. What did Adam do to earn that? Nothing. It's interesting. If you read the, the account, it's God plants a garden, and then he plants man in the garden as a gardener. It's kind of interesting. It's similar language used to describe those things. God plants a garden, and then he plants man in it. Um, you know, I think about uh, John and Joe Walt, who are here today. Uh, seven years ago, eight years ago, October 1st of this year, uh, my wife and I got married. And the place where we got married was John and Joe Walt's backyard. Uh, and, and they are master gardeners. You know, they, they curate the lawns. Uh, they make sure everything is, is beautiful. Right before the wedding, John was, uh, going out there with a blower. Uh, I've seen Joe out there barefoot doing, doing all sorts of weeding work and things like that. And, and, and I mean, they've got green thumbs. Um, I've, I've killed plastic plants before. Uh, I don't know how, but, but they just died. So they're, they're master gardeners. And, and, and when you, when you think about it, you know, a lot of the stuff they do, it's a lot of work. Getting rid of the weeds, making sure the right plants are planted, making sure they're in, at the right soil level, making sure they get enough sunlight, making sure they get enough water. It's a lot of work. Man enters into a garden that's already pre-made. He's to work and to keep it, but guess what? Somebody else did all the initial work. They, they receive it as a gift. Also in that provision, he gives them what? He, to be able to eat freely from every tree in the garden. It's lavish. It's abundant. They get fruit from all the trees that the Lord has provided. So first of all, there is a provision. Part of God's command is to enjoy the abundance He has provided. By the way, if you read scriptures, I think it's, you know maybe it's just because we're negative. Maybe it's maybe this is just the way I read uh, scripture. But a lot of times, as we're reading, as we're looking at scripture, you know, you focus a lot on the "thou shalt not" and all these difficult and hard and gloomy passages. But if you read the Bible, one of the things you'll notice is there's certain commands. It's like, wait a minute, that seems kind of nice. There, there, there are these Old Testament commands, and uh, okay, your job is to celebrate what the Lord has done for you. You're to have a feast, you're to kill a fatted calf, you're to drink wine, you know, there, there are certain things they command, and it's just like, now wait a minute, it's part of God's, what God's commanding is a celebration, is rejoicing, is enjoying what He's given. 
that's uh, something I need to remind myself of just because of my own natural disposition. God commands them to enjoy the abundance He has provided in the garden. So first of all, there's a provision. Secondly, there's a prohibition. Uh, There is a provision and then there's a prohibition. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every tree you can eat from, except for one. The provision is broad. The prohibition is narrow. One tree they're not supposed to eat from. Here, Adam's told to refrain from eating only from one particular tree. Thirdly, we have a prohibition or a warning. I'll do three Ps. That'll help the Baptists out. You know, you have a, a, you have the. Oh man, my brain just went blank. Uh, provision, thank you. Uh, there are 90 year olds in here with better memory than me. That's scary. Uh, you, you have a provision. Secondly, you have a prohibition. Thirdly, you have, um, man, my, my brain is just dying on me. Um, you have a warning. What's the P word for warning? Penalty. Precaution's a good one, too. You have the penalty. You have the penalty. Uh, y'all want to get up here and preach? I'm, I'm running on empty. I don't know what happened. Uh, you have the penalty. Okay, what, what's the penalty? Uh, it's pretty dire. When you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, now, I told you about the wet paint thing where, where I touched it. There's some other signs, there are some other warning signs that I don't mess around with. Uh, danger high voltage. You know, death by electrocution. You know, those signs I don't mess with. It's not, oh, let me see if this will really electrocute you to death. I don't know about that. You know, those signs I don't mess with. You, you don't mess with certain death. In these commands of God, we, we see His goodness, we see His truth, and we see a concern for people. In our health series, one of the things we said and reiterated is that if you care some about somebody, you warn them. You warn them about real dangers. We have a concern by God for the people, so He warns them. Uh, the penalty for disobedience was certain death. Death uh, this death that we see later on uh, affects all of man's being, resulting in physical, relational, and spiritual death. So th- this word and warning of God is something that's good. It is something that is intended to benefit man and to honor God. Um, as I said, we're in this unique place where the word of God has come to a part of creation that can either obey and disobey. Now, uh, that was a review. It took about half our time. Uh, but now we're, we're, we're going to get into the temptation and the fall of Adam. Let's, let's look together at Genesis 3. We're going to look at uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 6. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat 
the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desi- was to be desired for making one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So in the garden, um, Satan, also called the devil, appears as a certain serpent. And by the way, we know that this is uh, Satan, also called the devil, uh, because of Revelation 12.9. If you look at Re- Revelation 12.9, uh, it describes Satan uh, and the devil appearing as a serpent. In Revelation, he's also called a dragon. Uh, so there's one person. These aren't multiple characters uh, in, in the story. Uh, and w- one of the things we see throughout Scripture is that Satan's purpose is to be a deceiver. Uh, his whole being and, and his whole craftiness is working towards being opposed to God and his purposes. His intent for humanity is to join him in a rebellion against God. And uh, it's interesting, we see a lot about temptation in this passage. Um, by the way, that Satan uses the same tricks over and over. He, he doesn't have, uh, he, there might be different ways he runs the plays, but he runs the same plays over and over again. He begins by engaging Eve with a question that plants a seed of doubt about the truth of God's word. Do you see that? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? By the way, Did God say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No, just one tree. So already he's planting a seed of doubt about the truth, and he's also trying to make God out to be more wicked than he is, to be more stingy than he is. Uh, in Eve's response, we also see a couple things. Now, we mentioned there were there were three Ps. Hopefully, I'll remember them this time. Uh, there was a uh, provision, a prohibition, and a penalty in the command of God given to mankind. Uh, in Eve's response, we see a divor- distorted version of the command God gave. She diminishes the provision. She says... We may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden. What, what did God say? May eat of every tree of the garden. Diminishes the provision of God. Next we see that she adds to the prohibition. Uh, and not only does she say that you shouldn't uh, eat from the tree uh, of the the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. So not only not eat, but she adds to that command, don't touch it. She adds to the prohibition, and then she weakens the penalty of the command. And she says, uh, lest you die. What does God say about it? Surely 
In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Uh, so we see that uh, there's some ways, and we don't know whether it was uh, Eve's interpretation or the way Adam passed on the commands to her, uh, but we see some uh, distorted versions of the command God gave. Uh, Satan then, like I said, this is, this is his playbook. He always does this. Lies about the consequences of sin. Isn't that the truth? Any time we're tempted, and especially the times we give in, we believe a lie that, hey, this isn't going to have any consequences. It isn't that big a deal. There's not that much that's going to go wrong if you disobey. Satan lies about the consequences of sin, telling you, you shall not surely die. Finally, he calls into question both God's character and God's will. You shall not surely die. Why? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is stingy God. God's a, a, a jealous God. God doesn't want what's best from you. He wants to keep what's best from you away from you. God is a liar. He's not good. He has a wicked character and a wicked plan for your life to keep good things away from you. You gotta get it for yourself. Satan uses these tricks over and over again, saints. The quicker you can realize them when they appear in your lives, the better prepared you will be to handle them. Now, we see at this point, after undermining God's word, God's character, God's will, Satan sets them up to rely upon their judgment rather than God's judgment to determine what their actions ought to be. Satan succeeded in convincing Eve there's no consequence for disobedience to God's word and that God was withholding something good from her. And now she had to make a decision about her actions. Uh, by the way, do y'all ever think about this? Like they are living in a time period where they have, they would walk with God in the garden. And this is the first time they hear a contrary voice. I'm like, hey, whoa, what's going on about, what's going on with this? Oh man, is God really like that? Now, one of the things they don't do is they don't say, well, hey, let's, let's wait a minute. Let's ask God about this later. Let's see what he has to respond to, to these accusations. They set themselves up as judge and relying on their judgment rather than God's judgment. This is the first time they've heard a word contrary to God, and guess what? They believe it. The Bible tells us that as she's making this decision, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make ones wise. In other words, she responds to this temptation by trusting her own judgment rather than God's judgment about the character and the nature of the tree. doesn't look like the type of tree that if you eat from it, you'll die. It looks like the type of tree that will make you wise. Eve's process, by the way, seems to rely upon the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.16 
warns us to guard against the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the, and the pride of life. As I said, Satan's got a limited playbook, but he runs those plays over and over again. She ate the fruit because she relied upon the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, shockingly, in this whole exchange between uh, Eve and the, the serpent, the text reveals that Adam was passively present with Eve the whole time. It says, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. What, what is Adam doing in this passage? Nothing. He's just there. He could have he could have lended some help. He could have engaged in the conversation, but he's just sitting there. Hey, let's see what happens. Let's see, let's see what goes on. By the way, Adam obeyed his wife rather than God. She gave it to him, and he ate. First uh, Timothy two fourteen even intimates that he knew uh, that it was wrong. Uh, that the woman was deceived, but Adam wasn't. And he obeyed the voice of his wife, which makes his actions all the more grotesque. And by the way, as all this happens, there, there was something we mentioned in the creation account uh, that is being undone. In the creation account, we, we talked about uh, this hierarchy that God rules and has dominion and authority over all things, and that he places mankind over the earth to exert his dominion and authority over the earth, particularly over the animals. Y'all remember that? Y'all remember it says, uh, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What do we have here? We have a creeping thing that moves about on the earth that is convincing man to trust his own judgment and rebel against the word and warning of God. It turns the whole system upside down. Where man is irresponsible in areas he should be responsible for. Where he's submitting to a portion of the created order that he is called to have dominion over, and he is having dominion over a portion of the world that is his God that he is called to be submitted to. It's an inverse of the intended hierarchy. By the way, they were in the midst of the abundance of God's blessing toward them yet took the one thing prohibited to them. You ever think about all the good that was in the garden? They were in a good world, in a good creation, in a good area. There's like this this weird part, everybody usually skips over it a lot, uh, and we kind of did too, so I can't get too mad at them. But it, it, it talks about the land and, and the rivers, and then like all the different gemstones and, and minerals. Like the area they're in is really rich. Really beautiful. Then the garden that he, God plants, like all the, the emphasis is there's these good things and good things and good things and good things that man is surrounding Adam and Eve with. They took the one thing that was prohibited to them because they trusted the wrong voice. As we read uh, from Hebrews, one of the things we talked about was that Christ was tempted in every way as we were, yet without sin. 
one of the things this reminds me of is, uh, you know, Christ enters into a much worse situation than Adam and Eve does. He's in a fallen world, surrounded by fallen men and women, suffering under the curse. He experiences uh, pain. He experiences suffering. He experiences all these horrendous things, yet never does he disobey the word of God and serves as our righteousness for us. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Certain death was promised to disobedience. Next time we're together, we're going to be looking at the horrible, horrible consequences of the fall that results from man listening to the wrong voice and giving in to temptation. Not a cheery place to be. But aren't you encouraged that Christ has undone what Adam has done to us?